Amen, amen, and amen. What a rocking sermon bumper, huh? You want to just like stomp your foot and start clapping? It's awesome. Well, hey, if I haven't met you yet, uh, good morning. We're glad you're here. My name is Nick. I'm one of the elders here at the Transit. And today we're going to be looking at John 15, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 15. And historically, if you've been at the Transit for uh, a couple of years, you know that every turn of the year we dive into the spiritual disciplines. And as that sermon bumper uh, showed, that video showed, we're going to be talking about abiding in Christ through the spiritual disciplines for the next five weeks. So for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about the spiritual disciplines. Joe Workman's going to be up maybe once, maybe twice. I'm super pumped to hear him preach. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And um, so with that said, I have a confession to make in regards to my life and the spiritual disciplines. The story of my life has been really stinking at the spiritual disciplines, right? Anyone else resonate with that? No? Can your pastor say that? Probably not. Anyways, um, and the reason why I think a lot of us here, when we talk about the spiritual disciplines, we have this kind of sigh and resignation of like, oh man, for the next five weeks, this bald man with the microphone is going to remind me of how much I fall short of being a varsity level Christian. Because all the varsity level Christians, they read their Bible and pray and fast and worship Jesus 24 hours a day. And my hope with this sermon series is to completely reframe the way we talk about and approach the spiritual disciplines. Because often um, we become so warped in our thinking in regards to them, because if we think we stink at the spiritual disciplines, then that shows, that shows, that reveals something that we actually completely misunderstand the spiritual disciplines. And, and, and therefore, when we misunderstand the disciplines, we misapply them in our lives. And so that's why I'm going to spend majority of my time today doing some reframing before we talk about diving into God's word and diving into prayer and all, all the, the discipline talk. But before that, for the majority of my talk in John 15, we're going to be talking about abiding in Christ through the disciplines. But the reason I think we have that misunderstanding when we talk about the spiritual disciplines is we think the spiritual disciplines are synonymous to physical discipline. So we equate having a quiet time with going to the gym, okay? What do you do when you go to the gym? Shout it out. Have fun. Somebody has fun. Okay, yeah, you have fun at the gym. You sweat. Yeah. Work out. Right, work out. Work hard. Maybe look in the mirror and flex, right? At least that's the gym I went to. I had big mirrors. A lot of the guys there would just look in the mirror and flex because I think that's why they had the gym membership. They didn't have big enough mirrors at the house, so that's what they would would do. But see, what we see when we approach the spiritual disciplines like physical discipline, the key focus of physical discipline is self-improvement, self-enhancement, and if, if we're not careful, self-exaltation, right? Where, where the, the, the gym can easily become just you falling more in love with your awesomeness and the size of your biceps as you're repping out, you know, if you're Dre and you're watching online, 80-pound dumbbells just curling those bad boys like I curl 15-pound dumbbells. Um, and so the focus, the focus, when we have that focus, we'll go, this is the mindset we'll have when we go to our quiet time. We'll say this, oh man, I got to get in the Word because I, why? why? Why do I need to get in the Word? I have to, to, to build my Bible reading muscles today. Oh, I'm going to strengthen my prayer muscles today. I'm going to pray for like 15 minutes straight. I'm going to pray. And so the target we're aiming at is the discipline and not the Savior who's waiting to be abided with through the discipline. Does that make sense? And so the danger of seeing the disciplines this way, please listen to this, is that you don't actually need God. 
You just need an idea of God and good Christian habits, right? And if we're just solely going to quiet time to abide with the disciplines and not the Savior through the disciplines, and there's a, 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 a key distinction that needs to be made with why we emphasize the disciplines. And so, and that's often, I think, the, the reason this is on my heart is, is one, it's the story of, of my life is missing the mark when it comes to this, but also, often the exhortation you'll hear in the church is, is when we talk about the disciplines, and this is why I want to be so clear here before we dive into a five-week series on abiding, is that the exhortation is often not to pursue God. The exhortation is often not hunger and thirst for the living God and delight in Him uh, and abide in His love. The exhortation is often, if you want to be a good Christian and level up your Christian maturity, then just go read your Bible. Then just go pray more. Have you considered fasting? You know, those are kind of the exhortations we give. And so we exhort people to pursue the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, as an end in and of themselves, while never once mentioning abiding in Christ, which is a far greater invitation to extend to people. And, um, and that's the reality of the matter, as we see Jesus talk about this in the Gospels, is that you can do all these things day in and day out of getting your word and prayer. I'm going to be speaking on prayer next week. I'm going to share a story that illustrates this. But you can do these disciplines day, day in and day out and actually miss God in the process. And actually miss God in the process. How do I know that to be true? Well, one, it's... <laughs> It's the story of my life, right? I'm pretty good at just, all right, what's my to-do list? I got two chapters read. Boom, done. I can check, check my you know, Christian box off the list, sideline Jesus, and just go about the rest of my day without abiding in Christ. But Jesus also talks about this in John 5 when he talks to the Pharisees. He says, he says in John 5, you diligently search the scriptures because in them you think they have life, not realizing that they testify about me. I'm who they testify to. I'm the one who they point you to. And I've heard it said this way. I don't necessarily like this illustration, but I couldn't think of a better one. I'm stealing it from another pastor. Um, I was listening to it on a podcast. But he says the, the disciplines are not to be quicksand, where, where they just lead you deeper and deeper into the discipline. The disciplines are supposed to be a trampoline, where they, they propel you vertically into the presence of God, right? So not quicksand, just a never-ending pit of, of, you know, just trying to focus on the discipline, but a trampoline to to propel you vertically uh, into the presence of God and abiding in his love. And so all that to say, we're about to read John 15 here. All that to say is this, is that the spiritual disciplines are never to be an end in and of themselves. This is what the spiritual disciplines are. The spiritual disciplines are the biblically ordained means of us relationally connecting with the living God. The spiritual disciplines are the biblically ordained means of us relationally connecting with the living God. What God in his word teaches us is, is that God in his grace to us, he has given us the precious gift of his son, and he's also given us the means, the spiritual disciplines, to walk with, to hear from, to talk to, to abide in, and encounter more of the depths of his son's love for us through the disciplines. And so this is what we see Jesus invite us to in John 15, 1 through 11. So turn there. Verses will be on the screen. As, our, as is our tradition, we're going to uh, read these verses out loud uh, together. And as we're reading this out loud together, just take note of the language your Savior is using. And I'll talk about the context of this passage after we read it, but just take note of the relational language that's being used here. John 15, <clears throat> verse 1. Help me read this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a relational God. Father, we thank you that you are a God who gave us your Son so that we could be set free from the the chains and the punishment of our sins and our wickedness and set free and reconciled to you. Thank you for the reconciling work of Jesus. And so I cry out today, and I ask that Jesus would be magnified and glorified uh, today in our hearts and our minds and our souls. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you take the blinders off of any lies we've been, been believing about your heart posture towards your people? You say here that, that you love us, Jesus, with the same love that the Father for all of eternity has had for you. And so come, Holy Spirit, apply these words to our hearts and our minds this morning. I pray that you would magnify Jesus and exalt him and that up here I would decrease, I would be forgotten, and you would increase and be magnified, Jesus. Come have your way with your word and your people, Holy Spirit, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, hey, the context of John 15, I don't know about you guys, but one of my favorite passages of Scripture is the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 to 17. Uh, that's the context of our text today. In the upper, Jesus is in the upper room. He's sharing one last meal with his disciples before he's betrayed within a couple of hours, and then within less than 24 hours, he's going to be crucified. And so um, scholars would say that this is kind of Jesus's deathbed message, if you will. These are some of the final things he is going to tell the disciples in the upper room before he goes to the cross. And one of the first things he says in verse 1 of our text is this. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. We need to ask ourselves, well, what does Jesus mean when he says that? Or a better question is, in the first century, how would have the disciples understood what Jesus was saying when he says, I am the true vine? Well, historically, we know throughout the Old Testament, Israel, the people of God, were, were uh, known as and described as God's precious vine. Look at Psalm 80, 8 through 9. You brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations, and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root, and it filled the land. And so we see here God's purpose of redemption of the Exodus was to call out a people of bondage to himself, who would glorify their Redeemer and how they would bear fruit of righteousness and justice and be a blessing to the nations. It was a replanting and uprooting. This vine was uprooted out of bondage and slavery in, in Egypt. And the Father, John 15:1, the Father is described as the vine dresser, plants this vine in the promised land. And, uh, and, and, and with the intent that his people 
would call upon him as he has called upon them. But in fact, what his people did, as we studied in Daniel, they actually chased after other gods. And this is what we see in Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the, the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. The father, the vine dresser, he looked for justice. He looked for fruit. He looked for fruit from the vine that he planted in the promised land. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so what we learn about this, this vine of Israel is that uh, the fruit that this vine uh, produced was bloodshed. It was pagan idolatry. It was wickedness. They had fallen woefully short of what God had intended for them. And so when Jesus, all that to say, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's making a profound statement there. What he's saying there is he's contrasting himself. Jesus there is contrasting himself with all the failures of Israel and proclaiming that where Israel, the people of God, failed, he would triumph on their behalf as their truer and better vine. Where the vine of Israel lived in rebellion to the father, to the vine dresser, Jesus, the true vine, would live in perfect submission and obedience to the father. And it was through his perfect life and Jesus' perfect sacrifice that the once wicked vine could now be united by faith to the truer and better vine and through that union receive his perfect righteousness and his forgiveness and his perfect peace. This is the great exchange of the gospel. The wicked vine giving their wickedness to the truer and better vine and in return, Jesus Christ giving his righteousness and his forgiveness and his cleansing work to his people. Amen? That's a beautiful exchange of the gospel. Jesus is the true vine. Where we fail, where the people of God fail, Jesus triumphs on our behalf as our representative, representing the people of God, representing Israel. I love that. And the reason I share that, I want to emphasize so much on that, when Jesus talks about the true vine, is this, is often our pursuit of the spiritual disciplines is, is nothing more than a vain attempt at earning favor before God through legalistic effort right? How do I know that? I've never done this before, but maybe you've done this before. You take a, a flower, and you have a quiet time, right? And you had a quiet time that you go, oh, God loves me. You didn't have a quiet time that day? Oh, he loves me not. Oh, God loves me. I had a quiet time today. Oh, God, God doesn't love me. He must be displeased, right? And so when we have that attitude, he loves me, he loves me not, based on my performance, we see we have a completely warped thinking. When it comes to spiritual disciplines, we're actually trying to contribute to the, the work of the true vine, we're saying we need to pad his stats a little bit more. I need to earn a standing through my righteousness to earn God's favor when, he said, when it's already been earned. And so the, the, the outcome of this thinking when we approach the disciplines this way is either pride, self-exaltation, or shame and self-hatred, right? And so if you're type A and you're a super planner and you've been having precious, awesome, quiet times with Jesus since you were like three years old and you haven't missed a single quiet time, often it's easy to leave that quiet time and go... Man, I had a quiet time again today. I read the Bible. Uh, I prayed for like longer than 15 minutes. I'm just rocking this thing. Has Jesus seen my stats this season? Like, I am rocking this thing. If I don't get chosen for the varsity squad this next season, I don't know what Jesus is looking at because I'm, I'm hitting all the metrics here, right? And that's type A. But maybe you're here, you're not type A, but maybe you're type B, the super procrastinator. And you haven't had a quiet time or more than spent more than five minutes with the Lord since you were three years old. And, and it's just tough. Like your, your quiet time looks like, the, you know, maybe the, the scrolling on your phone to the right, looking at the verse of the day or whatever. It's just tough for you to get that time with Jesus. 
And so then what that looks like for you is is self-hatred and condemnation, where you go, wow, I didn't have time with God again today. I ride the bench on the JV squad in the kingdom of God. And And then this, Jesus must be so displeased with me. He must be so disgusted with me. And then, and then you put on the face of Jesus that coach you had in like your freshman year when you missed the shot and again, you missed the layup or whatever, and he looks at you and he just throws his hands up in the air, turns around and just shakes his head in disgust. And, and often when we approach, the reason I want to hone in on this is I've seen this in the church, is that when we approach the disciplines that way, we live in a perpetual state. Rather than standing in grace, like scripture says, standing in the love of Jesus, we actually stand in We believe we stand in his perpetual disappointment, his perpetual condemnation of us. How do I know that to be true? Well, I counseled someone not too long ago who said this. They partied like crazy before they came to know Jesus. And they said, internally, I actually had more peace in my heart before Jesus than I did after. And that, that to me, was a tragedy. And the reason why, and the reason why was this stinking thinking, right? That's why. That's why. It was... It was, Jesus is always displeased with me because I'm never praying enough. I'm never uh, reading enough. All this stuff. And so the bottom line is this. The bottom line is this. Is that if your life is a baseball card, and you want to keep stats of your, your Christian disciplines, you know, and, and, and on the front is you at your best moment, right? Like you just like praying or me up here like preaching, you know, whatever. That's on the front, like 2020 season, Nick, you know, whatever. And then on my stats, like Nick read this many uh, chapters in the Word, and he prayed this many minutes, and, you know, 2020 season, and whatever, when you fl- if, you're, if you're here today and in Christ and on your Christianity season of 2020 card, if you flip it to the back to see your stats, it's the crucified Savior hanging on the cross saying, it is finished, it is covered, the legalistic striving is all taken care of, that game doesn't exist anymore for you. Now come and abide in my love. Now come and abide in my love. That silly game we play of keeping track of our stats is completely meaningless. Where Jesus is saying, what are you talking about? The cross levels the playing field. Even your best, even if you were like about a thousand this year on your quiet times, it doesn't, it it still doesn't matter. I've paid for it in full. That silly game we play of earning God's favor through having quiet times and rocking the disciplines, um, it doesn't exist anymore. Because our only boast, church, Our only boast is in Christ crucified, is in Christ crucified, our Savior, who he is and what he's done for us. And so moving on to our text, after Jesus announces that he's the true vine, that he would succeed where Israel had failed, here's what he doesn't say next. Here's what he doesn't say next in the text. Okay, disciples, I am the true vine. In less than 24 hours, I'm going to cry out from the cross, it is finished. Meaning your salvation, your forgiveness, your redemption, your reconciliation to the Father will be fully paid for on my account. And as a response to my free gift of salvation for you, the great news is, is that from that moment on, you will have no need of me in your life. Feel free to live every single day of your life completely without me. And the great news is you can do whatever you want in this life, and I'll see you when you die. Because I just, the reason I die is just to give you a free pass of heaven. I really want nothing to do with you on this side of eternity. Jesus doesn't say that after he says I'm the true vine and that you don't have to strive. You don't have to strive to earn my favor anymore. Watch what Jesus says in verses four through six. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Look what he says. Abide in me 
and I in you. We see the heart of Jesus. He, not only does he invite us to abide in him, he wants to abide in us. That's his heart, his desire. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And I think a, a key distinction to help us understand our relationship with God, the, to get more specific here so we understand kind of the distinct distinctions here is this, is our union and our communion with God. Our union is our union with Christ. That covenantal bond through faith in Christ that can never be broken. Romans 8, right? Our union with Christ. Nothing, Romans 8, nothing and no one dare could ever separate us from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah, right? That, covenant, that union can never be broken. But what scripture clearly teaches is that our communion, our fellowship, our abiding, our intimacy, our knowing and walking with Jesus absolutely can. And the greatest illustration, I think, to, um, to illustrate that with is marriage, right? Uh, you know what, 2012, um, I'm going to, April 7th, 2012, I got married, all right? And I said some vows, all right? Um, to Jen, and we said, till death do us part. Meaning, as long as there's breath in my lungs, we are, we are in this covenant together before God. Before God, this union can never be broken. However, if you're married here for longer than a week, you, you definitely know that your communion in the relationship can, can ebb and flow, right? To put it nicely, maybe that communion for you, if you're married, maybe that communion kind of ebbed and flowed on the way to church this morning. You had, you know, maybe a little fight or whatever, right? And uh, so we know that to be true, and it's the same way with our relationship with Jesus, right? We see him talk about that in scriptures, Revelation 3, talk about our walk with the Lord. He, he equates it to temperature, being hot or cold. You're lukewarm. I'd rather you be hot rather than lukewarm. Um, and Jesus says this, he, this is what he says in John 15, he says, abide in me. Like we, almost like we have a choice of where we're going to, who we're going to abide with or what we're going to, to abide in. And that abide in me, that's a relational invitation. That word um, connotates to dwell, to dwell with, or to remain, to, to abide, to dwell with, to remain. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Stay relationally connected to me. Stay relationally connected to me. J.C. Ryle has this awesome quote. This is what he says. He kind of further unpacks what it means to abide in Christ. I love this quote. To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of, I love this, constant close communion with him. Constant close communion with him. To be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him and using him as our fountain of life and strength. And I love this last line, as our chief companion and best friend. As our chief companion and best friend. That's the invitation Jesus gives to us when he says abide. Constant, close communion. As you're doing the dishes, as you're changing a diaper, as you're commuting to work, where you are, Jesus is with you. The spirit of God dwells inside of you. Uh, the, veil, uh, the veil doesn't um, open and close every time we have a quiet time. You tracking with me? It wasn't like the veil opens that Jesus tore at his crucifixion 
and then that gets closed only, only when we have a quiet time. It's forever that the, the let me say this, the phone call never, Jesus never hangs up the phone. You tracking with me? You can always cry out to him and cry out to him for help. And I was, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to start preaching my next sermon. But I was, I was uh, walking with someone. There's an awesome uh, park over there and a lot of my hangouts and uh, counseling appointments or whatever. We just go for a walk in those woods. And uh, I was talking with somebody. And I couldn't, uh, uh, there was, you know, I, I don't sometimes know all the answers, but I, I know a Savior who can help. And this person was asking me, what is it, I'm kind of confused, what does it look like to abide? What does it look like to pray without ceasing? Like, what does that look like? And I, I just go, I go, bro, I've been praying this whole conversation. What is, I've been asking, I'm saying, Jesus, help. I'm listening to you, but I'm, I'm, I know that the presence of God is within me, and I'm going to keep close communion with him. I'm going to cry out for help and say, Jesus, would you come? You have far more greater things to offer this person than I can. Would you come and give me wisdom and revelation for what this person needs? That's what that looks like, a constant, close communion with Jesus. And then Jesus shifts the illustration from abiding with us, and then he says, you and I are the branches. He's telling his disciples, you are the branches. And it's just so interesting why Jesus would use this illustration that we are the branches, but when you think about it, it's beautiful, because what we know about branches is that the very life and growth of a branch is 100% dependent on the life that flows from what it is attached to. The very life and growth of a branch is 100% dependent on the life that flows from that which it is attached to. And so the extent of its utter dependence on the vine is seen by the moment it seeks independence and detaches from the vine. What Jesus says is that if you don't abide in me, you will dry up and wither. You'll drive and wither spiritually, just like a branch that detaches from a tree. And this is what Jesus is perfectly communicating, clearly communicating, is that there is abundant life, spiritual sustenance, and soul satisfaction in no one and nothing else but me. Jesus is after your heart. Jesus is after your deepest heart longing and your deepest heart desires. That's what he's after. This is what Jesus is saying, is every second of every day, I'm what your heart is searching for and longing for. I am what you were created to be attached to forever. And just like a branch can't bear fruit apart from me, neither can you. If you and I, often in our Christian life, we want to go out, sideline Jesus, and go bear fruit. And Jesus is saying, spend time with me, get close to me, and just see what happens in your life. You can't get close to fire and not get warm and get change and maybe even get burned a little bit, right? When you're in the presence of fire, it's going to change. It's going to change you. And that's the same way as we get close to Jesus. That's when our hearts and our affection will be started with love for God and love for our fellow man. And, uh, and I think a great 21st century description rather than vine and branches is a cell phone, right? This is a 21st century illustration that everyone can agree to. Cell phones, particularly my cell phone, it was created very dependent. Okay, my battery, you ever have a cell phone that the battery life lasts like two hours? Oh my gosh, it's so, it's so annoying. First, first world problem, so I shouldn't be complaining. But, and then two, my charger port on this phone is all mess, messed up. Have you guys ever encountered that with the iPhone? Like you have to like, you have to keep your phone like hanging from the roof at a 45 degree angle with like an easterly wind for the thing to charge. You know, any, just me? That's my phone, right? That's my phone. But my phone, the only way it can function the way it was designed to function, the only way it can fulfill its intended purpose in life is if it stays connected to the proper source of power, right? It, there is no other source of power than, right, the 
the power charging cord. And it's the same for you and I. I think we need to see and ask ourselves and do an audit this morning of, hey, where's, our, where's my battery percentage right now spiritually in my life? Right? What, if there was a number on the screen of my life today, the screen of my heart, what would be the battery percentage? And if, if it's been at like 20% and you've been in the red for all of 2020, what Jesus is inviting you, there's no condemnation. Jesus is actually inviting you in this text and saying, hey, apart from me, you're going to be operating at 20%. You're just going to slowly tick away. But hey, come to me for life. Come to me for love. Come to me for joy. Come to me and I, and I will give you what your soul desperately needs. You were created to be in perfect fellowship with me. And so what's interesting is that Jesus shifts gears here and he continues. He doesn't just say, abide in me. And we see his heart, I want to abide in you. But he further unpacks what he's calling us to abide in when he says this in verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. We can gloss over this without understanding the staggering implications of what Jesus is saying. This statement is staggering. Jesus is saying, that I, as I have been a recipient of the perfectly pure, ferocious, eternal, everlasting love of the Father, it's with that same ferocious, perfectly pure, eternal, everlasting love that I love you. That's staggering. We can't even begin to scratch the surface to even think about in the Trinitarian Godhead how much the Father loves his Son. For all of eternity, he's saying, as to the degree of that eternal, unfathomable, incomprehensible love, that's the love I extend to my disciples. That's the love that I give them. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus is dearly loved by the Father. And it's that love that he gives us. And often when we don't abide in Jesus' love and receive that love first and foremost in our life, we can't give love. And Jesus is modeling first here, what I receive from the Father is that which I give away to you. And so when we want to go out with the reason, <laughs> anyways, we got we to stay put in the love of Jesus a little bit more, church. And I think social media will look a whole lot different. A whole lot different, right? It's staggering what he's saying. It's staggering. As I have been loved, I love you. And then what's even more staggering is that we of all people we get invited into that love. And it's not just abide in me. It's so interesting. Jesus says, abide in my love. What a greater invitation for you to get in the, the beauty and wonder of God's word on a daily basis when you approach it with saying, I'm going to abide in the love of Jesus today. I'm going to receive his love that he has promised, that he wants to give me. I don't have to twist his arm. He died to make this a reality for me. What a far greater Reality, don't have a quiet time. Go abide in the love of Jesus. It'll change your life. That's how we're changed, abiding in his love through the discipline. And, and I imagine that if we believe this, if we actually believe this, it's always so hard to believe this because often in our lives, those who've been adopted sons and daughters of the living God, we still live like orphans and we still believe lies that we should no longer believe. But imagine if we believe this, we actually believe what Jesus was saying here, that we are dearly loved, and that every day he's waiting to abide with us in that love. I think it would motivate us far greater, be a far greater motivation for us to get into the disciplines.
And um, I think the reason the church today is walking around so love-starved, I really believe, because I'm preaching to myself, church. I see this in my own life. I have a great tendency to miss the mark when it comes to the disciplines. Um, I've shifted up my, I, I shifted my language in my journal from saying I'm having a quiet time to I'm going to abide in the love. I'm going to use biblical language. I want to abide in the love of Jesus today. And so I think one of the reasons we have so much trouble with what I'm saying, and it's so much trouble from, from it to shift from your head to your heart, is this, is I believe we have a truncated gospel sometimes. A gospel that is beautiful and wonderful, but it does, it stops too short of what the gospel actually says, what scriptures actually say. And our gospel um, often stops just at the forgiveness of sins, and we forget that we were redeemed for the sake of a relationship. We were redeemed for the sake of a relationship. We were redeemed for the sake of a vibrant, life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to dwell with God forever in all of eternity. That is heaven, that we get God. We're going to be in his presence, and we get to dwell with him right now. That's what Jesus accomplished for us. That's the greatest chief blessing of the gospel, J.I. Packer says, in knowing God is not justification by faith. It's adoption. We get a father, our father. Our spirits cry out, Abba, Father, Romans 8. That's the chief blessing. It's relational. And so let me illustrate this. Anyone here know what the PNC Club is at National Stadium? Anyone been there? Okay, well, I have a mentor friend of mine uh, who uh, is a dear brother in Christ. He's about 20 years my senior. He has the spiritual gift of making money, and um, that's not a spiritual gift. This dude loves the Lord, and just to show you his, his heart, the Lord uh, told him he was going to retire really early, and the Lord said, hey, I want you to work for 10 more years and make as much money as possible, and you're going give it all to give it all away to missions. I'm actually driving a car he gave me. The dude's, the dude's a boss. I love this guy. Um, and, uh, and so he got me and two other guys in ministry like four or five years ago uh, uh, tickets to the PNC Club at National Stadium. And uh, your seats are right behind home plate, so we're right behind home plate. But before that, you get there at like 530, and the PNC Club is you show them your, I don't even know what the price tag was on this ticket, and you, you, there's a transfer that takes place. You're once outside of the kingdom of the PNC club and transfer takes place and now you're in the PNC club and there's this buffet never ending buffet of dude I'm a wing guy I could crush wings all day like a mountain of wings delicious wings right ribs steak desserts coffee good Pete's coffee wine uh, you know all, all everything there right and and listen I think I think this is what our gospel looks like is is we just if it's just justification by faith it's, yes, it's amazing news that I am now in the PNC club, right? But my boy, my mentor, is saying, and, and, then, and then when people come, they say, what are you doing here in the PNC club? Let me see your net worth. I'd be like, here's my net worth. And they say, you shouldn't be here. And I say, well, actually, that guy got me in. Take it up with him. And they go, okay, it's, 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 his, it's his bank account that got me in the PNC club, right? But then often, my mentor, we go, imagine this. We go to the PNC club. He sits at the table and he's got a buffet waiting for me, but I'm not going to sit with him. And he would say, Nick, come feast with me. Come taste and see the goodness of, of what I've purchased for you. And I'd say, no, that's legalism. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that I've been transferred. The gospel is because of your works, you just got me in here, and I'm going to sit here and starve. I'm not going to sit with the guy who got me into the kingdom and fellowship with him. And he's crying out, and he's saying, the whole reason I purchased you, the whole reason you got transferred was for the table fellowship. That's why you're here, because I love you. I want to hear about your life. 
I want you to get to know more of the depths of my love. The wings taste great, Nick. They got Pete's coffee. Come over here. Say, nope, 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 nope. That's legalism. Can't be too emotional. Don't want to be too extreme. I'm going to sit here by the turnstile. And then we do that, and we're spiritually dehydrated, church. We are completely love-starved, absolutely. And then what we do is we won't feast on what Jesus has to offer us, so we'll still be sneaking back from where we came from. And we'll be eating some nasty hot dogs from the nosebleeds, some cheap beer when there's great beer on tap in the PNC club, right? And we'll still be sneaking back to this old stuff because our, our souls were created for worship. Our souls were created for connection with the living vine, the true vine. And when we don't connect with him, we're going to run full sprint to false vines. To false vines. It's a story of my life. I see it in the church. And we're just living under our privileges. Do we know what Jesus has accomplished for us? There's a feast. The scriptures say, taste and see. The Lord is good. Far better. He has far greater food, far greater delights, far greater love, far greater joy than anything this world could ever tempt you with. Stop eating the nasty hot dogs and the nosebleeds and say yes to the invitation of Jesus to come and feast with him. That's the gospel, 1 Peter 3.18. It says, it says uh, I'll, I'll turn to it, it's not in my notes, but we just went through 1 Peter. This is biblical, it's in God's word, church. says this. I love this. It's not going to be on the screen. Sorry. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I love the gospel. I love that. That is the gospel, right? It's beautiful. But Peter keeps talking. He keeps talking here, and he says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that Jesus might bring us to God. That Jesus might bring us to God. The work of Christ is reconciling work. It's relational work. It's redemption. It's bringing us back to the Father. It's bringing us back to the Father. I love that. And then Jesus goes this, and I think too, maybe we're fearful of emotions. Maybe we're fearful of excess, and that's why we kind of keep our distance from moving our faith from just the head to the heart. I'm a guy who loves theology. I spent six years in seminary. Dude, I love theology, right? Um, So I'm not negating the, the, the... the goodness of studying the scriptures and learning more about God. But I'm also dearly loved by Jesus with a passionate love. And Jesus here talks about emotions in scripture. He talks about affections. This is what he says. This is what he says. He says, abide in my love, the eternal, ferocious, everlasting love that the Father has for me, I give to you. And then he says this in verse 11. And I'm slowly wrapping up here. These things, watch verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus has joy. He's got joy. And you might say, oh, rebuttal. Here's a rebuttal. Nick, joy isn't happiness. Happiness isn't joy. Joy is just, Nick, what scripture says is joy is just miserable contentment. Your life stinks, and you just gotta, you got to be content. Nowhere. Read Randy Alcorn's book. I'll name drop somebody else. You don't take my word for it. Read Randy Alcorn's like 450-page book called Happiness, where he completely destroys that lie that joy and happiness are pitted against each other in Scripture. It's a lie. Show me where that's in Scripture. It's not in Scripture. Joy means joy here in this text. Joy means a smile on your face. Joy means gladness of heart. Joy means satisfaction in the goodness of Jesus. That's what it means. We have to break off that lie. And I've even preached that to to you before until I read Randy Alcorn's book. 
So public apology for that. It's not in the Bible. You've heard, I'm sure you've heard that said, oh, joy and happiness are different, so we can't actually, when Jesus says joy, he actually means miserable contentment. That's not what he's saying. And then it begs the question of this is, how could Jesus receive the eternal, everlasting, ferocious love of the Father and not have fullness of joy? And not have fullness of joy. And then that joy he possesses in his relationship with the Father, he wants to give to you. And then he describes how he wants to give joy to you. He says, not in part. He says, I want to give you my joy so that your joy may be what? Full. Fullness of cup overflowing like the PNC Club. A never-ending tap of fullness of the rivers of living water. And this is what Jesus invites us to in John 7, 37. He's at, he's at the great feast and he stands up and he cries out, if any of you thirst, come to me. With your thirst, with your thirst, and out of your heart will flow rivers of everlasting water. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Simple truth here, and I'm gonna, I am concluding with this. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm, I'm slowly wrapping up here. Is this, is that Jesus is after your fullness of joy and your love in him. He is. Jesus wants you. He wants your heart. He doesn't want to give you in part. He wants to give you the fullness of that. And so when we run to the disciplines, we're actually running to Jesus on the basis of his word, the inspired scriptures, on that basis, we say, Jesus, I want to abide in your love today. This is a great quote by Dane Ortland that talks about kind of what I've been talking about, our hesitancy to receive what God has for us. Dane Ortland has a great book called Gentle and Lowly. Do yourself a favor. Everyone go and buy that and read it immediately. This is what he says. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't just want us to be forgiven. He wants us. How does Jesus speak of his own deepest desires like this? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me. Jesus prays to God. He prays to God for the possibility that you would abide with him. The high priestly prayer, John 17, his prayer is that you would abide with him. His disciples would abide with him. Our unbelieving hearts tread cautiously here. Is it not presumptuous audacity to draw on the mercy of Christ in an unfiltered way? Shouldn't we be measured and reasonable, careful not to pull too much on him? I love this line. This is worth the price of the purchase of this book right here. Would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in a measured, reasonable way? That's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. Would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in a measured, reasonable way. If you're here today and your battery percentage is on 0.1, there's, there's life offered to you in Christ. Absolutely. If you're on the live stream or you're here today and you've never experienced the life that Jesus has for you, it is all true. This is who you were created to know and to love and to follow and be loved by. So we cry out to him in faith today. And I'm going to close with Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, I'll close, and then we'll take communion. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 talks about the joy that was set before Jesus and says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a lot of 
uh, debate here on what that joy is. What was the joy that was set before Jesus as he went to the cross? And maybe, might I suggest, that yes, it was the nail-scarred hands that would be offering forgiveness of sins on behalf of the people. Maybe also it was the nail-scarred hands being open, saying, come to me and abide with me and inviting you to fellowship with him. The nail-scarred hands, maybe the joy step before was those nail-scarred hands enveloping his precious son and daughter that has been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and adopted into the kingdom of God. Maybe, just maybe, that too was the joy step before him. The forgiveness of our sins and also enveloping us in his fellowship and his love for all of eternity. And may that, the next five weeks, may be the heart of Jesus for you on the red ink here and scripture may be that that causes us not to walk or not to crawl, but to run with a smile on our face to meet with and abide with the Savior who is smiling. He's smiling and is so happy in our presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you so grateful for the gift of abiding Jesus. Lord Jesus, we say thank you for the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice. We say, Father, thank you for giving your son. We love your gospel. We love the good news that there's forgiveness of our sins, that you have washed us by your blood, Jesus. We love that. We delight in that. To whom much is, uh, those who are much forgiven, they love much, God. So we say thank you, Lord Jesus. And now, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come and you would apply your word of John 15, 1 through 11 to our hearts. Wherever there are lies that we're believing that we, we perform into your grace and perform out of your grace, we perform in your love or perform out of your love, would that lie just be shattered today through the preaching of your word and the truth of your word? And God, would you powerfully meet with everyone in this room and on this live stream Moving forward these next couple weeks in January, I pray, Lord, that in their times with you of abiding and fellowship, that there would be a newness, God, that they've never tasted and seen before, a sweetness to your presence, that you would speak to them crystal clear through the scriptures. You'd meet them in power in those moments of prayer with you. You'd show them Jesus exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father as moments of worship and crying out your praises, God. Would you come for your bride, Jesus, and reveal to us the depths of your love? And I'll close with this prayer in Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell. Oh, your heart, Jesus, is so good. You want to dwell. You want to dwell in our hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, Father, apply this to our hearts. May we have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And all God's people said, amen.